Hey everybody, Jake from Tasting Anarchy. I'm really excited to introduce this episode. We had a very special guest, Jackson Blood, who is working in the wine industry. He had some great wine recommendations for us, gave us some really insightful wine history and some kind of knowledge about the ins and outs, questions Mason and I have had. We had just an awesome time recording. The episode's a little bit long, but uh, bear with us and I hope you enjoy it. Stay tuned later this week because I have some outtakes from this episode where Jackson bestowed upon us some more information that uh, was pre-recording, so I didn't want to put it into this. Enjoy! Down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start singing all night. Drinking wine, for the to drink wine. Wine, for the to drink wine. Wine, for the to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start fighting all night. Welcome to Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by Mason Joseph. And today we have a very special special guest, uh, Jackson. Um, I don't know if you want me to give out your full name, but if you would like to, you can introduce yourself. <clears throat> sure. Um, my name's Jackson Blood. I was I saw you guys did this podcast. I'm interested in wine, also interested in volunteerism, anarchy, all of that as well. And so I thought, you know, why not reach out to you? I've um, I'm basically in the process of starting a small wine import company that'll take a while, but I can give updates later. And sure, let me let me know anything. It's my first podcast. So. All right, you're, you're doing you're doing awesome so far. Um, I mean, that's that is like the best introduction for a first co- podcast guest that wasn't you know somebody who wrote presidential speeches. So like, <laughs> I, I will go for it. Yeah. Well, uh, this, you know, Jackson, since you're going to be doing a, a wine import business, you gave us a really good recommendation. What you and I have been talking on Twitter back and forth the last couple of weeks. And one of the things you shared with me was that you're a big fan of, uh, Bordeaux wines. And so we picked out, uh, Bordeaux wines to try for the show so that we could kind of tell you what we thought about it. And you could maybe give us a little bit more information just on the region in general, not specifically these wines. Uh, Mason, you got one that's slightly different than the one I got. What are you sipping on tonight? Um, so I'm going to apologize to Jackson because I'm sure he may be a little better at this. But uh, Jackson, if you haven't realized, uh, Jacob and I are the worst at pronouncing things. Uh, so I have the Chateau Le Cézanne, um Hoyt Madoc 2015. Um, and there's some more on the bottle, but I couldn't even come close to pronouncing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought Jacob... This is the you had the possibly the 2014 as a uh, a varietal option. I did. Wasn't sure which one you got. Well, I did have the 2014, but uh, because we had to postpone last week's show, and I had a mm-hmm. bottle of wine, and I can't leave a bottle of wine undrunken. I drank that, <laughs> and I went back to Total Wine, and I got the same one you've got. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, so you and I have the same one. the The 2014, um, the one that I had was was really good and this one's very similar. I would say that um I'll give you my tasting notes real quick Mason before you do. Oh, please. So, my tasting notes, I said this was like the the taste of it was similar to some of the other Bordeaux that I've had, but there was a smell in this one that was so unusual to me that I had to kind of point this out before anybody else pointed out. And I don't know if you got this or not. This has like a a sea smell to it, like an ocean smell. It smells just like kelp 
when you're like on the beach of Bodega Bay in California where I'm from and you get those kelp whips and you like swing them around and stuff and there's that smell of kelp in the air. That's what this <laughs> smells like. And it does well, have other smells too. It, ha- it does have like a black fruit smell and it has have mm-hmm. kind of traditional um, red wine smells. But this was such a unique smell that was very prominent. It's not as prominent in the 2015, but it was very prominent in the 2014. I thought that was just such a fantastic smell and it kind of brought me back to my childhood when we used to go camping. And I, well, I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> well, as I have the 2015, I, I don't have a that, but I, you know, growing up on the East Coast, I don't have the, I know the kelp smell, um, but I don't have that as much in this one. I have much more the, just the red wine, um, the smell and the taste to it. So like, um, one of the things I'll apologize for as always is my descriptive powers aren't, are not as good as Jacob's. Um, but also to reference to Jacob, I did have like three glasses of Tepernello, mm-hmm. um, in between this, because, you know, we had everybody, <laughs> we had people over tonight. Um, and my brother was there and my brother is, he's just hitting that like, you know, adult stride and, you know, got his first real job and, and things like that. So I kind of like every time I can shepherd him into like being an adult, I do so. And then the, apparently being an adult was to give him copious amounts of uh, good red wine because <laughs> he had some of this Bordeaux. And yeah. I, I'll be honest, like I, I don't often go with blends, but this is this is a very tasty wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, uh, just to kind of give, I guess, the percentages on this. I have the percentages for the 2014, which I think are the same for the 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, the blend is 58% Cabernet Sauvignon, 35% Merlot, 7% Petit, Verd- Petit Verdot, 7% Cabernet Franc. It's a 13.5% alcohol by volume. At total wine, um, the 2014 is $20. I think that you mm-hmm. paid a little bit more for the 2015, and I don't recall what I paid for it. Um, and uh, it's very good. Um, I don't know if, if Jackson has anything he wants to weigh in. I know that Bordeaux is one of his favorite. I specifically got this one and, and had, and kind of shared it with Mason because you said get something from the left bank of Bordeaux. I don't know what that means exactly. So Jackson, why don't you weigh in on that? Yeah, sure. So kind of to start, uh, one thing I would add for Bordeaux and European wines in particular is when they say 13.5% alcohol, they're lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, every single time, I, without exception, um, because basically they're allowed to lie within 1.5%. So generally you can add or subtract 1%, um, 1.5% even. Uh, and they tend to want it to look lower because French consumers see lower alcohol wine as higher end. Mm. So that's one thing uh, to bear in mind. Uh, and then the other thing is both that you said that you did the 2014 and 2015 vintages. That's correct. Yeah, Jacob did. Yeah, yeah those, were, those are both excellent vintages in left bank of Bordeaux. So, you know, you should be getting that ripe fruit initially, which is quite rare historically for Bordeaux. But it's, you know, the past 10 vintages have been quite good with a few exceptions. Um, but yeah, I was wondering if you're getting one thing I've noticed over the years is differentiating between new world and old world wine is, are you getting much more earthy notes on these Bordeaux than say you would, if you, it was a Cabernet you were expecting from Chile, from South Africa, mm-hmm. from California. Well, one thing that I did write down in my notes that I don't normally write down is that they did, and this may be earthiness, um, but I, I described it as very minerally. There was a much yeah, more yeah. a stronger mineral flavor. Like, um, graphite, even. Yeah, maybe, maybe that. I, it was hard. To, it was, whoops. A lot of people get graphite, cigar box, cedar wood, um, forest floor. 
um, you know, damp leaves and some Bordeaux's actually. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, I'm, I, I guess those are a little bit more difficult for me to pinpoint. I described it as minerally. It's almost like, um, like the, a, a slight taste of what you, and I've described it this way to Mason before. And he's like, I haven't done that since I was a kid, but like, you know, when you put your, the tip of your tongue on a nine volt battery and you get that kind of like electrical minerally taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's like a very, very faint amount of that, and that's what I would describe as minerally. And, and this is this is what I'll I'll chime in with is uh, we had a pot roast and that was cooked in cooked in Tempranillo, um, and I, I, maybe Jason or Jackson knows how to pronounce that correctly. Uh, um, say, go ahead, say it one uh, more time. One more time. One more time. I keep cutting uh, you off. Tem- uh, tempranillo. There we go. Perfect. Okay. Okay. Tempranillo. Yeah. Um, so that's been Jake, one of Jacob and I's favorite varietals as of late. So we had a port, uh, pork roast co- um, cooked in that by El Pastor tonight, and I had been drinking another varietal that I found at Kroger uh, cheaply, and so I think it kind of burnt out part of my palate. But like I've got the, this has a like you you were saying, Jacob, the minerally taste to it. Like uh, it's one of those ones that like one of the things I don't often see or don't often get in like the new world blends is the polish like this is a very well polished wine like it has the right flavor notes like you can tell that they didn't blend it because they were trying to make up for necessarily deficiencies in like their main grape like they blended it because they wanted it to taste this way yeah yeah and if you forgive me interrupting and getting into a rant. Oh, don't. No, no, no. There's, there, that, that is us. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, there's a huge misconception on blending. I think Americans in particular are much more likely to think this way. I, I think maybe the British too. The Brit- they're forced anyway. Uh, but I would – but basically – with blending what most wines are blends. Every, almost every, you know, top wine you can think of is going to be a blend. Every Napa Cabernet that says Napa Cabernet, that's one of the top Napa bottles is almost always going to be a blend unless they're meant to age, you know, 30 years. But the reason why is because grapes need balance. And even if you can get a good ripe Cabernet, you want other notes from other grapes in there. So they'll add Merlot to add softness, to add perfume. You add Petit Verdot for a different structure. You would that, That's basically the idea of blending, is it's not a matter of better or worse. It's just a different way of making a wine. And so there, it shouldn't be viewed as more or less high-end because of that. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And, and I think that uh, Mason and I, because we've been trying a lot of old-world wines lately, we're getting a little bit more, especially like – well, actually, I don't know about you, Mason, but I've been drinking a lot more of the Rioja uh, Spanish mm-hmm. wines, which are mostly blends as well. Um, so n- not as extreme of a blend as this. This seems like uh, it's a four-grape blend, which usually, the ones that I've been trying lately are two or three, um, but I don't know if that's any – I don't know if that's just the tradition of the region or whatever, but um, – yeah, and I, I think I, I kind of started changing my mind about this because, like I, I said, I was I was down at uh, um, down at Total Wine the other day, and normally, and I told this to Jackson when we were talking before we started recording. Normally, I walk past the red blend area, and this mm-hmm. is one of the first times that in a long time that because I've had this Bordeaux and I've had the other Bordeaux that, and um, I've actually had three Bordeaux and a bunch of Riojas lately, um, <laughs> and. I like I stopped in, like usually I just walk past Red Blend and I was like well let me let me take a look at this these let's see what's in here and like maybe I'll like some of these or whatever specifically because 
it's I always go over the other red section because I love Cab Franc, and uh-huh. it's so hard to get a Cab Franc that's under like forty bucks. Really? Yeah, at least here it is, and and in Virginia. Um, well, uh, so this is are this you is look- what I oh, sorry. go ahead. No, Jackson, go ahead. Uh, are you looking more for? Are you looking at Virginia Cab Franc? What, what countries are you looking at Cab Franc from? Uh, well, it, they have a section, the other red section that has Cab Francs. So my guess is that I'm looking the wrong way, and that is that yeah. France does is has Cab Franc grapes there. So my guess is that I need to go into the France area and look for their blends that are high in Cab Franc. So, yeah, basically you have to understand it in terms of the regions there. For Cab Franc, you're looking at um, the Loire. So when you see a red from the Loire Valley, which is primarily known as a white wine region for Sancerre, you know, for more of the crisp, refreshing wines often made from Sauvignon Blanc, they also make uh, Cab Franc there uh, for their reds. And a lot of them are phenomenal wines. They tend to be a little, they tend to be, you know, quite a bit lighter than Bordeaux, Mm. Um, not as light as Pinot Noir. Uh, But if you go to, if you look at the, Loire Reds, if you see a Chenon, a Sancerre Rouge, if you see a, um, I'll have to think of some more, my um, Samur Champagne, perhaps. All of these Loire French regions will have pretty much entirely Cab Franc-based red wines, and you can get one of the best bottles that'll last maybe 40 years in the cellar from France. Um, there's this one maker, I think her name's, it might be Olga Goldberg. Um, but they make a Cab Franc in the Loire. She makes a Cab Franc in the Loire, and it's considered it's a biodynamic wine, considered one of the top in the world, and it's only twenty bucks. Wow. Okay. So well, this is well, exactly let's, let's the person that I want to talk quick. to. If you like Cab Franc, you should ne- you shouldn't be paying more than thirty dollars ever. You should be in the fifteen twenty range. Okay. Wow. Well, okay. Uh, let's let's take a stop real quick because not only was that just absolutely fantastic information and, and just so much more informative than Jacob and I normally are. What you, was it biodiverse? I, I'm, well, I missed biodynamic. the it's basically, yeah, what, yeah, oh, go ahead and define that. Uh, basically that is, it's like organic, but on steroids to a crazy extent. So it was actually this farming practice made by the same guy who made Waldorf schools in the Germany in the 1800s or something like that. And part of it is a plant according to lunar cycles, and they use cow horns in the ground to channel energy. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. This, no, sounds, this, awesome. this sounds amazing. Um, and they can only plant, they can only pick if it's a certain time of the year. And basically, almost all the best wines in France, including uh, Domaine de la Romani Conti, DRC, which is a Burgundian one and their bottles of wine go start go for ten thousand dollars a bottle new. Holy cow! Wow. Uh, Holy cow horn! <laughs> yeah, it's like a twenty acre vineyard that's like worth two hundred million dollars or something. It's fantastic. Well, that, okay, so uh, this is this is just amazing, amazing information, and it makes me want to kind of move on from our our wine right now because we'll recap that at the end and sort of get into Jackson a little bit because sure. yeah. So I want to I want to mm-hmm. pause real quick okay. before we move on from there, Jacob. So I want to see if Jackson thinks this way possibly. Um, So one of the things that I've I've started to notice about the old world wines and Jackson kind of mentioned this is like blending isn't a problem there. Like that is a tradition to, to drive the wine to be its best to 
reach the flavor profile that these master makers want to reach. Whereas like it seems in a lot of the, and this may be from people who aren't necessarily steeped in wine, the, a lot of the new world blenders, they're trying to get a consistent product and, and not like they, they want, oh, I realize that I'm deficient in this robustness this year, so I need to bring something else in to bring it up. It's like, no, I'm just trying to hit the same fl- flavor year after year after year, like that consistent product, kind of like um, like when you go to buy like scotch tape. Like you go to buy scotch tape because it's the same tape million yard after million yard, whereas it's like, the champagne mix. <laughs> Yeah, and that's one of the things that I always kind of thought was annoying about the old world wines is they were always trying to like blend to be a certain flavor, whereas I want to experience the difference in the grapes. And that's why I like pure wines because it, it you get to experience the difference in the grapes, like the variety to it, where it's like, no, like this is the same same vineyard two years later and it's a different wine because of what's happened. But like, I think that's kind of the the thing that most Americans see is like, oh, it's a blend because we want consistent product year after year and yeah. not, uh, not to go like, no, we, we were trying to do this this year. Yeah. Also, wines have always been blends. It's just a lie for the most part that, you know, the single variety thing is relatively common. It's, you know, only if a single variety is growing in your vineyard, would you be making a single variety wine? If you think medieval peasants were you know, picking out their Cabernet from their Cab Franc. It's, it was all field blends back then. Okay. That's, that's, that makes a lot of sense actually. And it, and it makes a lot of sense that in Europe in particular, because they have such a long wine growing tradition that they would be doing this just blending. And, and I, and I wonder how much, and this would just be, I guess, interesting thing to look up is if, uh, when did they start saying what percentages of what grapes were in there? If this was something they started doing for the British and Europe and American market, because that was something apparently the British and American care oh. about, or if they've always been saying, Oh, this is this percentage, this, this percentage, that. Oh, that, that can't be more in France. Seriously, that can't be more than a 20 year old phenomenon. Okay. And I, and I wonder if that's because, you know, America until, until China really entered the scene was such a huge consumer market for wine, particularly for European wines. Um, that uh, it, that they went ahead and started changing their labeling practices specifically to uh, market to us. I, I don't even think it's market, Jacob. I think it's probably labeling laws. No, that's not oh, that, no, that, that no. could be. You don't have say, say that again, Jackson. Uh, there's no lab, there's no labeling laws in place. Huh? Well, uh, so like in the United States, they have such restrictive practices on like saying what's in the thing, and I understand that like you know on the bottle that we have, it, it doesn't list the percentages, but I think that might be kind of the like the idea of the openness that the Americans are required to present with what's in things. Um, compared to some European countries where it's like, you know, like kinder eggs and things like that. Like the Americans have, we have such restrictive like practices for food laws. Like, I think that's kind of one of those, maybe that also plays into it. I think from what, from what I can tell from the research I've done, kind of the history of blending and single varieties Mm -hmm. is basically people, there were some wines that people drank as single varieties and some wines that people drank as blends. Um, Riesling has always been marketed as Riesling. In Germany, if you buy a Riesling, it's going to be Riesling. 
Um, and then, and Alsace does the same thing in France as well, actually. But generally speaking, though, if you look at how wine was listed and you look at a wine list, it's the place, not the grape. You know, you see, mm-hmm. you see, you wouldn't even see, you didn't actually start seeing the names of grapes on the top French wines, you know, like in turn, in probably until the 70s or 60s. Hmm. Um, not on the labels, but just in general, people didn't even know what they were. You know, you could be an expert in wine and say the, in the 1940s and you know you wouldn't really have to know what the grapes were in it you would more just have to know what wine who makes wine in these regions because the region is was considered and i think it should be considered far more important than the grape variety that's 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 very interesting jackson and i and you have such an abundance of knowledge and that leads me to my first question for you which is you said that you have a background and like and can clearly display it here that you have a background in in wine what exactly is your background in in the wine industry well I'm, i haven't been formally involved in the industry as such until okay. more recently Okay. But I went to university in the UK, um, so I was able to start earlier mm-hmm. uh, for two years, and I uh, so I joined the wine taste. So I was like, I've always kind of liked wine and food, so I got into the wine tasting team, um, which is a club there. Okay, uh, and basically from there, I I realized I like it. It has a lot of the intersections of my interests to meet here because I like I like food, I like history, I like geography, I like all these sort of things. I like aesthetics a lot. And so to me, that was a very good, very welcome meeting point. I really enjoyed wine and I enjoyed it since I first had it. Mm -hmm. But so that's sort of my background and how I got into wine. And from there, it was primarily self-directed learning. So I, you know, you read the books, you do, you have your own groups where you do your own, you know, tasting events. And you basically what those operate as is we would do, we would have, say, 20 people band together and everybody would put in, say, you know, 10 bucks and basically from that and we would also get a discount from the wine merchant we would be able to try you know small glass of of 12 different wines all at once and you know and that's just a fantastic way of learning about wine that's actually that's a good uh piece of advice too for any listeners and actually for myself because this never really occurred to me to go and actually i should do this because i have no friends but (laughs) other than mason (laughs) but uh the uh there there is actually a pretty a nice pretty upscale wine store not too far away from here and I never go to it because it's expensive compared to total wine but I bet I guarantee you they've got to have a wine tasting club yeah. and I would not mind paying a little bit extra just to go there and get get that sort of knowledge where I can try a variety of wines and get a little bit of piece of of each one and maybe somebody there who can tell me a little bit about it. Also, you well, might actually get some better wines for better prices at that store. That's true, yeah. And actually, Mason, uh, in Virginia Beach, uh, Yanni's, mm-hmm. that would be not a bad place for you to look and see if that's something you're interested in doing. Um, is well, the- I, I thought about reaching out to him directly, um, mainly because, you know, being a, a you know, he's, he's from Greece originally, um, and you know, my desire to taste more exotic wines, you know, being a, a person who really likes to try to the try to get Georgian wines when he can. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not expecting him to specifically have them, but like, you know, Greece is a very ancient wine growing region as well. And, you know, my, like I'm a Riesling Pinot Grigio guy and here I am like drinking a Bordeaux and going like, this is such a great bottle of wine, like trying to taste different things. And that that's one of the problems with 
you not being here anymore Mm -hmm. is, you know, I would bring in the whites and you would bring in the reds. And, you know, we kind of did hamstring ourselves at times, but we also did kind of get to branch out a little more. And that's one of the, you know, would be great about having, getting a wine club together. Like Jackson was saying, you know, having 20 people pitch in less than what we were putting in a a bottle when we were together, Mm -hmm. you know, to, taste 12 different things even if you have something you had before like getting the familiarity again yeah it's just nice and that's what i would say if anybody's looking to get into wine and learn about it the most important thing is just (laughs) try different things you know make sure you have as many varieties as possible because you don't really know what you like taste is subjective it changes you know Mm -hmm. one in the mood for something one day i'm in the mood for the you know another thing i don't have a favorite wine favorite wine region i just you know i think there's a time and place for different wines right that, that's and i think that's very good advice to the listeners as well as to mason and me is is expanding your palate you know when mason and i first started doing this show i think the first 10 15 episodes that were my wine all of them were cabernet sauvignon and which you know cabernet sauvignon great i still drink it um but it, it's very limiting if you um, if you think this is the wine I like and I don't like anything else, it, it makes it so that you kind of get, I guess, plugged into one flavor and you don't ever get a chance to explore the variety of stuff. I mean, like some of the stuff that I'm tasting now, like particularly like, and I can't, I can't say this enough, this Rioja, the Rioja wines that I've been getting lately, like have really blown my mind in the unusualness of flavor. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing is like, you know, you were doing Cabernets, I was doing Rieslings and I was getting new world, uh, New Zealand, you know, old world. Like I was getting the variety and we were seeing them, but like also just the pure difference in price point. Like, and that's one of the things that, you know, when you're on a self-directed exploration of wine, and I think this is to, you know, kind of like show that you know, not necessarily like a deficiency in our thing, but like when you have 20 people chipping in 10, 20 bucks, like you can get like splurge on a $50 bottle of wine that's going to be split, but still have that, you know, exploration. Mm-hmm. Whereas like you and I were like, oh, <laughs> like, you know, your birthday wine, the Pina, the Cabernet, like, we were tasting stuff in that cab that we've never we've never gotten in any other cabs. Oh yeah, and it's like if we were buying hundred dollar bottle of wines, is that something we'd always taste, or is that something that was just unique to that that producer? Yeah. So like, I think that's well, one of those things that I, is just amazing think, about it. Yeah, you don't necessarily have to spend that much to get that level of complexity, but generally, when you spend a hundred dollars, you're going to get quite a bit of complexity in the wine. Yeah, this, I would this, hope so. Yeah. And this was <laughs> this was a very good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um and. So that's part of it. Another part is just how much aging can change the complexity and the aroma of it. For me, the aroma is more interesting than the flavor itself, even um, in some ways, just because of how, you know, how many things can change once the bottle's aged, you know, sure. 20, 30, you know, I've had a oldest I've probably had was something started and I've had something started in 1880. Whoa. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I, mean, um, I think the oldest age I have is like 2002. I was going to say, like, I think the oldest that I can confirm was the one I had last week, which was 2010. Now, that's not to say that I haven't had something older. It's just the one oldest that I've known, Um, you know, kind of paid attention to that information. Yeah. But basically, you know, the aroma changes a lot. You know, I've had that. That was a blend, though. That was a. I think that was a dessert wine. So they gradually add new grapes every year. So the blend was, say, started in sometime around 1880. Oh. 
and they keep adding it year after year in a Solera style blend. Okay. Uh, it, this you can find this stuff from say Moray mm-hmm. um, in France, um, and they actually add a, a bit of hard liquor to that wine too to keep it you know preserved. That's what fortified wine is. And, yeah. Yeah, Danny, so, you know, Mason, you and I, you and I need to start to try a, a fortified wine at some point. Like, it's not my favorite thing, but I know that like Victoria, uh, it's not fortified, but it's it's I guess would be a quote unquote dessert wine is um, Cahor or Cagor, however however it's correctly pronounced. And um, it's just, we gotta like get a clip of Victoria saying it correctly I, I every time we need to say it. Which yeah, one? yeah, I know. It's it's uh, what is it? it? It's a Sorry. it's a Moldovan variety well it's a Moldovan blend of Cabernet Sauvignon it's a very high alcohol percentage red wine but very very sweet and yeah, it it's uh like, Kate, that's a very, it's a very eastern european flavor yeah it, it's I, I i can't drink it but victoria loves it and well, it's uh k a k a g o r but but in mm-hmm. she says that the g is pronounced like an h like a h huh, but like a, a deep h huh. yeah so it's like well, Cahor. used to make so much wine for the Soviet Union. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And this heaviest, heaviest drinking country in the world, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, well, so speaking of this, so like my question for Jackson would be, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of like a forced transition, but not in a, yeah. not in a bad way. Um, nope. Since you're you're looking to start up a, a you know a wine business, are you even trying to focus on a specific area to? Like like a specialty, like, you know, like I want to focus on, you know, new world wines or old world wines or are you just trying to get like a broad spectrum there? Well, it's um, basically for import, the way import licenses and the way importing works is, you know, you can basically um, is I'm going to be primarily looking at wine from Europe. I'm looking mm-hmm. at Portugal and I'm looking at Portugal and Galicia, a region in uh, the northwest corner of Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I know Galicia because I know there's a lot of Celtic people there. Yeah, it's an interesting history. Yeah. Um, but bas- um, but I, basically what my goal right now is I want to focus on Portugal and Galicia at the moment because I think they're underserved areas. I think they're producing phenomenal wines that are completely undervalued. And I think that the vast majority of the top ones haven't made it to the United mm-hmm. States. I've actually had a Portuguese wine that I thought was unbelievably delicious. Uh, I think it was called Stone and Bone uh, Tinto, Stone and Bone Tinto, I think is what it was. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. Yeah, Uh, uh, it's probably uh, the Portuguese basically call it. Everything's called Tinto. There's Tinto Cao, Tinto Loris, Tinto Aragonese. Okay, yeah, and I, I remember trying this one and I was like, holy cow, this is great. And I don't. And I don't know that, like, you know, when you walk through the countries section of Total Wine, which is where Mason and I mostly shop for wine, um, I don't really ever notice a specifically a Portuguese section. There's Spain, and then there's Italy, and there's France, and uh, that sort of thing. But um, they must have a Portuguese section. It must just be like Someone's a subsection. Always, it's just always next to Spain, I find. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I'll look there because that's that stone bone was great. I think they just kind of mix together there. But yeah, sometimes you'll see Spain and Portugal together. And- a lot. Yeah. Um, Basically, what it sounds like to me is like Jackson's going to be our go-to for exotic and amazing wine. I think so. Once he gets everything <laughs> up and operational, that he yeah. can. Oh yeah, well, definitely. Hopefully, the goal is I can. The goal and part of the reason I'm in Seattle is I want to get direct to consumer shipping going for this, and that would be. 
and you know what? Good. There, there's not to derail the conversation, and I don't have an article for this, but I've been reading in Decanter and in uh, Wine Industry News a lot that there's a lot of very important court cases going through right now that have to do with direct to consumer shipping. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that, Believe that, me. Yeah, I, I, I guarantee. Yeah, you're you're I've paying spent attention. To that. Way too much time on the ATF website than I'm comfortable with. Yeah. Oh yeah, and that's gonna well, be that's gonna be good for you. But sort of, I guess, to on the on the note of uh, of laws and regulation in the wine industry, this is a little bit of a stretch of a transition. But I want to get to my next uh, question for Jackson, which is, mm-hmm. you and I have gone back a bunch, and we discovered each other. Through Liberty somehow on Twitter. Yeah. Um, how did you get involved in like volunteerism and the and I guess libertarian movement or I don't know if you'd consider yourself a libertarian. Where do you kind of so put much yourself? Better than my transition, Jacob. By the way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Where, where do you where do you put yourself? You're both doing better than me. <laughs> well, you're doing awesome, actually. Uh, like believe, the amount of me, man. Like I, I hate to say it, but and we may cut this part out, but like. <laughs> I'm going to be trying to drag you back to our show in posting like as much as we can because like the pure like I don't know like such a great conversationalist compared to us. Oh yeah, it it really is. Is this is like this is a lot of a lot of like awesome like I I've got a lot of good knowledge when it's like where did Rothbard say this? Where did Mises say that? I've got that kind of knowledge, but like the knowledge of wine is what it's the knowledge I crave and you've got it like on your fingertips, but sort of, and that's the thing. And it's not even like a contrived, like you're, you're just stating things like, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, we're going to have to like try to get you somehow because I mean, Jacob and I are very into Eastern European stuff and me, George and him kind of Ukrainian because of his wife and me, something about Georgia, but like, yeah, (laughs) so far, Awesome. And honestly, meaning to go to Georgia uh, for a while but now. That's, you know, you know, I don't know if, I don't know how involved you are in the libertarian podcast world, but like Tom Woods and Bob Murphy have the Contra Cruise. Mason yeah. and I have been fantasizing forever about the Tasting Anarchy Georgian <laughs> wine tour. <laughs> to, to, to be honest, like, and this is, you know, kind of like this is to derail the conversation completely, but if Jackson can pull off what he wants to do and hopefully we'll, you know, be able to support in, in any way we can, like, if he's importing from portuguese and you know um galatian areas that's the first place we're going like, oh yeah if we can kind of like tie in like hey this is the guy you need to like reach out to especially if you're going to be able to do direct consumer stuff like hey like you know kind of like the you know the contra cruise is like hey you go to like our event like no it's like we're gonna go see these winemakers like we're yeah. gonna you know importing wine from them let's go see them and then hopefully eventually you know go to these other places but yeah yeah and they both are beautiful places as well i would add oh, if you yeah. get the chance galatia is one of those galatia's fantastic it's mm-hmm. you know it's basically like ireland with far better weather more mountains and fjords going through it and some like mediterranean stuff and lemons all mixed up together it's beautiful what a what right, let's awesome get our uh, centurion armor and let's march through and take it back yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so anyways let's let's get back on point because uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to totally derail it so, what, what so is my your, politics yeah yeah your politics yeah. So my, I wouldn't say I'm, I'd say I'm, I would lean libertarian in pretty much most ways, more lean anarchist, I would mm-hmm. say. It's mm-hmm. more of a disposition to me than say an ideology or, so, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's an out. Um, so I'd say I, I got it. I've always kind of had that, an anti-authoritarian impulse. 
And I think that's just, it just sort of panned out like that. Um, yeah, feel free to ask some more questions about that. Okay. Because- well, yeah, I mean, both Mason and I are pretty hardcore anarchists and, yeah. um, and like, you know, we can put this in a, in a wine context and, and at, I'm, we're going to definitely have you back on the show because it, it's, it's so interesting <laughs> to me, but, uh, we'll, we'll put this back in a wine context, but like, um, like uh, this actually makes me really happy <laughs> that, that you're, that you, that you lean anarchist because that's like, it's, especially when there's somebody who's like a natural anarchist who's just like, yeah, I've always kind of leaned anti-authoritarian because that's not where I came from at all. Like there was a point. It's, in- it's, near, it's where neither of us came, came from. Yeah. But that's where I've ended up. And Jacob is so much more the, like, I need the, I need the philosophy, f- philosophical underpinnings to this. Yeah. And I, and I've always been that way, but, but kind of, uh, it actually derails a lot of my questions, but, um, but I think that like it, this makes me really very pleased. But um, I guess I, I mean this is just kind of an interesting thing. Is that do you have any like anybody from your past or anything like that that kind of led you to this, or has it always been a natural instinct? I, for me at least, a lot of it it was kind of a combination of things. Um, I'd say I have a healthy or perhaps unhealthy contrarian side to me as well. Okay, I, th- <laughs> um, I think that's typical in I, I libertarianism. I think that's pretty much all of us. And I yeah, know contrarian yeah. kind of gets. You know, people don't like being. Yeah, I, I not mean. I don't mean contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. Right. I meant kind of if I were like when I was going to when I was in middle school, it was you know if there were more Republicans, I would say, man, I'm going to push back. I, I, you kind of start seeing like where like I grew up around both sides of the political spectrum, both very centrist, very mm-hmm. moderate. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in a Greenwich Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, very center parents, center right, left. Right center right right mm-hmm. so for me i don't know it was a lot of it just resonated with me so right. one thing which resonated with me and this is quite different from a lot of people and i'm not a utilitarian at all is i read on liberty by uh, john stuart mill in mm-hmm. high school um and one thing he and he has one line in there which i just thought was you know the most profoundly important line was you have the right to do what you want so long as you don't harm another person to me, right. that just made sense to me. Okay, I can do what I want. I have, I know I have my particular preferences and all of that. And you can do what you want and try not to impose on each other. That's sort of always been my instinct. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it does. It I, makes a lot of that, sense. You know, and actually, that's the, that's the, that's the thing is like, I, I would say that the fact that that resonated with you as early as high school mm-hmm. is I think a step in beyond Jacob probably, and I. Like, oh, yeah. If we had heard that. For me, that would probably be more. I'd say I kind of had those instincts starting in middle school, I think. Yeah. Well, and you yeah. know, I think that I think a lot of people do very early on, and I've shared this story with Mason several times, is that I had a very anti-war instinct very young. Yeah. And it was sort of stamped out of me a little bit by my very conservative family. Um, and then I kind of rediscovered it later on. But I, I think that, that it, it, people who can... I don't want to say like follow their heart because like I think that anarchy and like well the libertarian anarchist the voluntarist that sort of side of things is a very logical so it's not necessarily an emotionally based thing but people do have an instinct for things that um that does end up being confirmed logically as well and one of you know an instinct would be like an anti-authoritarian an anti um you know as Walter Block says you know Mason one of Mason is my favorite people is you can do whatever you damn well please. Just keep your mitts to yourself. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, this reminds me a lot to Jackson. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read it. I'm going to put it in the show notes just because it's a good book. Um, is The Machinery of Freedom by 
Milton Friedman, who's I haven't, or, or, or I'm sorry, by David Friedman. David Friedman, yes, yeah. son. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. And actually, your story, Mason. I don't know if if you got this as much as I got this. He reminds me, Jackson reminds me a lot of you. Exactly. That's the that's the first thing I thought because like, um, and this is the difference between Jackson necessarily and and maybe myself is like Jackson read that um you know the John Stuart Mill quote and it wouldn't have resonated with me at that age but okay. like you know come, come the 2018 election I was like well John McCain is a lunatic and Barack Obama <laughs> seems like the devil to yeah. me because like you know he's just so oily and serpentine and then I was like Bob Barr's my guy and like no no recognition of like <laughs> Bob Barr's not a great not a great libertarian but like i was like i'm going libertarian so it reminds me so much of larry sharp who is somebody that like you know you know jacob and i are like a jackson like jacob said we are we're very anarchist like i don't think either of us voted in the last election set um (laughs) well you have done much better than us yeah but only had a few chances but (laughs) yeah so like um but like Larry Sharp's one of those guys that I would willingly cast a vote for knowing that he's not a liberty, not an anarchist, that he's his marches toward freedom and everything he's going to do. You know, he's going to do everything in his power to get us closer to it. But like that was the thing is like, you know, John Stuart Mills wouldn't have wouldn't like Rothbard wouldn't have impacted me. Like I could have read it and, you know, Anatomy of the State when I was in, you know, high school and it wouldn't have meant anything to me but like like listening to jacob talk and like kind of like our libertarian friends like i was a libertarian but like realizing like no this doesn't make any sense and kind of coming to it from a natural standpoint and not going like i need to back up my argument it's like look i don't I don't need anything else other than you can like as Walter Block or John Stuart Mills basically said, do whatever the hell you want as long as you don't impede upon another. And that's Mm -hmm. enough for me. I don't need the the Rothbardian like 10 page, you know, like 10 inches thick treatise of like this is completely logical and sound and consistent. I'm just, you know, hey, leave everybody else alone. Yeah. For me, at least uh, it's sort of I think it has to be coupled. I don't know. For me, an anarchist instinct has to be coupled with some sort of I don't know, not isolationist per se, but a very anti-imperialist instinct, mm-hmm. not just in terms of foreign policy or how we view, you know, the actions of the military, but in terms of everybody in terms of cultural imposition as well. Sure. I, I don't want to live in a world where you have people living the same way. If I could flip a switch and make everybody act like me and think like me um, and agree with me, I wouldn't do it, you know, hmm. or the hell out of me. How, how very refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's that is the hardest thing that I can say, you know, outside of those, would you kill your kid or kill your wife, you know, to do this sort of thing. But like that, that idea of flipping the switch and thinking like me and not thinking like me, that is the hardest decision for me because the way I think is everybody is so different Mm -hmm. that I'm kind of like, everybody would be fine. Everybody thinks differently. But then I think about it too. And I'm like, just the uniqueness of like, cause so Jackson, like I, I, and Jacob may have shared this, but like, you know, Jacob moved a couple months ago and people will randomly that, you know, knew that we were very close would ask, oh, do you talk to Jacob? And like one of our other friends that we affectionately refer to as little Jacob asked me like, you know, have you talked to Jacob recently? And I'm like every day. Yeah. yeah. Like there is not a day that goes by that we don't text and it's not like hey man you know hope you didn't get burned in the sun like no we're having like a 
10 year conversation that has just not stopped. Like, you know, it's like a yeah. 10 year, like bromance. Well, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I mean, for, for you, Mason and for classic Nate, it's with classic Nate's a little bit different because classic Nate will, I'll, I'll send things to him to, periodically. And then like three months later, he'll respond to all of it. And yeah, like, and that, that's the problem is I forget to res- keep sending him stuff. <laughs> yeah, he'll he'll get back to you eventually, but yeah. um, but you're right though. Like, I mean, it's it's one of those things is that like one of the I guess the blessings of technology is that we can be here with Jackson. You and I can talk every day and all that sort of stuff, and it and it really facilitates communication. And it does also though on the flip side of that. Well, and I don't think it's a bad thing because sort of to go back to Jackson's point. Um, I don't really want a homogenization of culture. I like the culture that I am. And, and you and I've had this argument or not really an argument, but this discussion, Mason, quite a bit is where like, I'll say like the argument will get to a point or it won't be like, I, I don't want to say argument because you and I don't really I don't argue. Think, I think we've argued twice in 10 years. Yeah. And, I, and, well, and I think one of those times in 10 years was like on the, on the fair tax. And I don't even agree with that anymore, but, but I, I, yeah, that's the thing is I don't think we were, we were sober enough to consider that an argument. <laughs> that's true. But, uh, we were talking about it actually this last week where, where the very, my, like my opening argument on that was this person is not part of my culture and that they want to impose their culture on me. Mm. And, mm-hmm. And it was a weird, it was kind of a weird thing. And like, I had to reflect on that later and be like, I don't know if that's a good opening position to take because Mm -hmm. I am sort of a man out of culture in, in Texas is, you know, I'm not a Texan. I, I think I probably fit in here a little bit better than I would in like New York, for example. But, um, but I don't fit in as well here as I think I would fit in, in Placerville, California. Um, but, uh, and that, and that, so this is the thing, like, you know, kind of go to back to that is like, just the dip, like Jacob has shaped my thinking on more things than anyone other than my wife. And and that's because we have a child together. So, you know, that, that person has inflicted my, not inflicted, but like shaped my thinking much more than anyone else because we're literally raising another human being together. But even then, like my thinking is so impacted by the way Jacob thinks and then the way my wife thinks and, and like my wife's from Central California. Jacob's from a little north of Central California and I'm from the east coast like right. super like middle of the middle of the united states like the biggest military population in the world like kind of place and like the idea of like imposing like a simple culture and it's like just like literally like jacob and i were talking about something just two like a week ago and i was like i did not expect him to respond specifically this way mm-hmm. and like just the like that little difference and it's like we've been like talking for you know continuously for 10 years and to be something different like i couldn't imagine flipping that switch and saying everybody thinks like me even though i think i think a little more independently and i think maybe jackson kind of thinks rough kind of closer to the same way maybe than jacob does specifically where like just the the you know kind of the free flowing free flowing of thoughts like no i wouldn't want to force that upon anybody like because it's even though we think more a little more freely and maybe a little less um and i i will say only specifically for myself a little less like rules based and it's just no like the the, you know the non-aggression principle as the 
the core of thought as opposed to the intellectual argument to it, like that is terrifying. Like the idea that you'd be like, oh yeah, I'm going to enforce this upon everybody. Oh, no, yeah, thank yeah. you. But it absolutely is terrifying to me. And that's one of the things is as much as I love California being, you know, being a Californian. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it would be an absolute disaster if they seceded as far as for the people who live in California and for the majority of my family who still lives in California, I think it would be a disaster. Um, I wish that they would secede because they they should be allowed to try the things that are you know that they vote for or or and actually I mean removing the aspect that like the state shouldn't exist at all but like there's a very large percentage of the population in California and they want to try these things that I think are going to be disastrous for them. Um, it would be very unfortunate for my family because most of my family I've been able to convince to be at least low level like Gary Johnson style libertarians, um, <laughs> <laughs> but. But for the most of them, like I, you know, actually, I, I've t- I've spoken to Mason about this. I was actually surprised by this when I was talking to my sister about it, who I thought was like a left liberal, and I was talking to her about it over Thanksgiving or maybe a little before Thanksgiving, and she was like, "I, I guess I'm kind of like a uh, like a reluctant anarchist," and I was like, "Really?" And she was like, "Yeah, I mean, like a lot of the things that you say make sense. I don't necessarily agree with." your position on them, but I think that I, I don't really want to force people to do X, Y, and Z. I would like them to just come to it on their own accord. And if they don't come to it, like it's going to be a ruin for them and I'll be able to get to it on my own. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's good. And, but sort of to get back to wine, because I don't want to go super I was late. Say, get back to Jackson. Cause yeah, like we've been talking exactly. stop for 20 minutes. It, well, exactly. And I want to get back to Jackson because I don't want to say super late. I know Mason, you've got to go to bed soon and I've, and I, I do too, but um, I wanted to get back to one thing in particular, Jackson, that you and I have I've briefly talked about on Twitter, and it's something I don't understand, and I don't think, Mason, you understand it either, and that I is... I, I think I understand it less than you do. Well, that might be, um, but it, it's it's the uh, Appalachians and the AVA areas in the United States. One of the things that you mentioned on Twitter that I thought was uh, interesting, and it was not a position that I had considered, and Mason and I, I don't think had considered this on the show at all, was uh, this whole thing that's going on with the Willamette Valley, where they're, where they're suing uh, Copper Cane over the labeling laws for labeling uh, their wine from, well, Copper Cane technically isn't labeling it Willamette Valley, but they're, but the way that they're titling their wines is making it appear that it's from the Willamette Valley, and they are Willamette Valley grapes, but they're fermented and turned into wine in Sonoma um, or possibly Napa. I can't remember which. Um, I think it's both. Sonoma. Oh, is it both? So wh- whatever the wh- wherever it's done is, can you tell us, Jackson, what is the advantage to having an AVA and what is, I guess, the advantage, what is the advantage to the consumer? What is the advantage to the winemaker? And what would be the reason why somebody would want to name their wine Willamette Valley, for example, instead of name, naming it a Sonoma wine with Willamette Valley grapes? So uh, most of the time, when, if, if, it were a, if it says Sonoma Valley wine, Willamette grapes, it, I think that's too confusing for people. Okay. So I think, I think people want to have one label one way or the other. Uh-huh. Um, so for me, the, for me, it's it's a question, and I'm I'm not somebody. I don't think the government should be involved. I think this could be really easily settled by private trade organizations forming together. You know, I, I don't think I don't think this is an issue for the free market. But I think that there is an issue when you have 
somebody basically misleading people that they're selling Williamette Valley Pinot Noir, which is a region. Basically, when people want, when people buy a bottle of Williamette Valley Pinot Noir, what they're expecting is all the grapes to come from there, and they're expecting it to have actually come from that part of Oregon in particular. And the reason it matters is, like I said earlier, most important thing for wine is region. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason there's not world class wines in Cuba. What's um, the, what is the word for that? It's uh, is it terroir? Ter- terroir? Terroir? It's like the hardest word word in the world to pronounce. <laughs> Don't, okay, I, <laughs> Jacob, you and I are screwed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just give up on that one. Um, I think it's like terroir. It's impossible but um it's the idea that basically it's the idea that the region the soil the um it's a very romantic poetic idea which i i'm i very much support mm-hmm. it's the idea well, that I, the it sounds like the soil essence. so the say climb, i'm sorry i'm all sorry is translated into the grape and you can taste it in the grape Got one it. of the examples of this in if you want to go full romantic poet is say the greatest Syrahs of the Rhone Valley or the Northern Rhone Syrahs of Hermitage and Cote Roti. And Hermitage, you know, it's grown on a hill that was basically that was given to a, a crusader coming back from the Crusades in France in 1100. And he went up to the top of this little hill and planted a vineyard. And ever since there's been vineyards there and in that region, they've been planting lavender for 2000 years. So people think you can smell lavender and the wine from Romans doing that 2000 years ago. It's just, it's just this fascinating concept. And I think it's important. I think it's the magic of wine is the region it's grown in. Mm-hmm. A great Bordeaux is only a great, should be, taste like a great Bordeaux. Right. A great Oregon Pinot Noir should taste like an Oregon Pinot Noir. I, there's big controversy in wine and we're starting to go back. The wine world is starting to move in the right direction again. The wine world was homogenizing a ton and now we're going back to say smaller things. We're going back uh, to regions. We're going back to all of this. If that makes sense. It, it does make sense. You, is, I, I don't know how much you know about like the microbrew movement in beer. Do you think that this is sort of the same same sort of thing where people want something local specific to the exactly. area? Something specific to the area and something they can taste, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, and that's it is from the coast of France. It's a white wine. It's crisp, refreshing, great with oysters. Mm-hmm. And it's from the coast of France. And you can, if you smell it and taste it, you can taste like a little bit of salt water, a little bit of the yeah. sea on the air. And it right. is, you know, the most incredible thing. Well, and that this kind of goes back to something Mason and I, or actually, I, I don't know if you and I were talking about Mason or if I was talking about it with Nate Classic in, in the Nate Classic Visits Dallas episode. But the uh, the story of wine is part of what you're paying for and part of what you're uh, tasting is that there's yeah. a there's a story to it. There's a uh, a flavor complexity that sort of invites you to understand that there's a history and a story to it. And one like one of the things for Willamette Valley that one of the reasons I love the Willamette Valley Pinot Noir is growing up in in, in Northern California every single year. And, and I've told you this, Jackson and Mason, you know this from my history, is every year I, I would drive from uh, roughly Sacramento um, up to Seattle every single year. And we would go through the Willamette Valley on the way up. And just the in my mind's eye, I can see... This part of Oregon, I've camped there. I've uh, spent time there. I've I've done horseback riding there. I've done all these great things in this part of and and I and I sense that. And then when I try a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir and I taste this kind of mushroominess and this sort of like loamy, um, 
actually dried leaves is a good way to put it like a, a, a like a loamy dried leaves in a Pinot Noir and a Pinot Noir is such a delicate wine too that I, I understand why it's nice to be for it to be labeled as a as a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir but I guess the to go back to the original question a little bit is does it change that much when a when a grape grown in the Willamette Valley is not fermented in the Willamette Valley it's actually fermented in Sonoma I think it it can depend on the tech. It depends on okay. you know, the, the if they're using a refrigerated car, how long they're driving it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people in Eastern Washington actually who grow grapes and they truck them into Seattle, and the wineries are in Seattle, but they're all the way out in Eastern Washington. Oh, okay. Um, so it doesn't necessarily affect the quality, but it can. Mm-hmm. If it were me, I I prefer to have a wine that's produced on premises. Okay. In cases with with exception with you know a lot of exceptions, but generally speaking, I would almost always, if I had the choice, I'd prefer one produced on premises. Mm-hmm. And most, I think most wine people would. Right. So that's a, that's part of it. Um, the other part is it, it's I think part of it is also just is sleazy. I got it. Okay. Yeah, and and that and that actually that's part of it. that's sort of where Mason and I kind of were talking about this when we as we've been discuss, discussing this copper cane issue is that uh-huh. the 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 primary issue I had with with them making it seem like their wines were Willamette Valley wines was not that they were Willamette Valley wines. It was that it was fraud against the consumer. That was my sort of feeling yeah. about it. Was I'm that, also not going to. Also, it's kind of you know they're they're not producing that great wine. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's it's large well, large it, production. So this this is one of those things where like I'm not pushing it back against what Jackson said because mm-hmm. this is the best description in reasoning behind it that i've seen but this kind of reminds me of the idea and like not to not to belittle victoria necessarily Mm -hmm. but like victoria is very into kind of the i i won't say um like tarot cards themselves but like the you know those kind of things where like to me like no no yeah she does like that she likes that sort of thing but it's it's mostly like psychology like big five and entp or uh, yeah so myers briggs me, like, kind of thing. As somebody who has a very, very bad sense of smell, yeah. and I can't necessarily, I don't have a good sense of smell. So, like, these aromas that, like, can definitely be there in wines. I know they're there. I just can't, I can't sense them. And that also impacts my ability to taste things. They have to be super strong taste for me to taste them most of the time. And like one of the things I like about Bordeaux and like, I like about a lot of red wines is I know there's something more there and Pina, which we go back to Jackson, like continuously, this is a a wine I bought for Jacob for his birthday. Um, You know, it's like, 98 or $89 or so. And Jacob just like totally was off the mark on guessing the price. And that was part of the the fun of the episode. But like when people talk about like, you know, the 1880s, like where seances were the big thing and people who said like, well, you just don't get it. Well, I don't get wine at a certain level because I can't, I literally cannot taste it. Yeah. Like I'm just, you know, like after a couple of glasses, I get it. But like, you know, when we're tasting, you know, tw- like you're tasting 12 wines and I'm, you know, like, oh, I, I'm having, you know, three ounces maybe at the most. I just don't taste those things. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. one of those things that like, a lot of it, it's you, so interesting you, to me. You like, change the tasting technique. I'm sure you could get over part of that. And, and po- quite possibly too. But like, that's one of the things that like is very like, it's it's like you have to do, a, if you want to get some more flavor also, you can, you can do, um, 
you have to bring air through your mouth. Well, you you do all the the weird noises. Mm-hmm. And There's a reason. <laughs> the things my wife does when she's tasting a sip of wine, and she's like yeah. a amazing smeller and taster, and it's just like <laughs> you're rubbing it in my face. No, like I I, I totally mouthwash. Like, but like that's kind of the thing that like as somebody who like one of the things that like if you ever listen to the first episode of this show it's like two and a half hours we're drunk as skunks like rambling beyond reason like but one of the things that we didn't want to come across and like you certainly do not but is like these hoity-toity wine snobs we don't want to come across as like people are telling you that oh you didn't lift your pinky and you didn't breathe at the apex of your taste so you don't know what you're talking about like we wanted to try to present a a normal person and like normal is not even a great description of it experience of wine and that's one of the things that like kind of always makes me think about like these like super descriptive things it's like well like is this what people who are into tarot think like i just think they're insane and then like i hear people talking about wine and i hear you talking about jackson and it's like no i can connect with that like this is there's something there and then i hear some of these people who are you know i will say they are a step beyond you with the the connection they have and like maybe they're a master sommelier and it's like that person's effing insane <laughs> like what they're saying is not real that's not a thing yeah, yeah basically what to me the when you're talking about the master sommelier stuff all of that you're that's basically the same stuff you see in most professions what it is is it's you know it's internal lingo it's um what's the term what do you call it signaling is what i would call yeah, it but no, i don't think that's right signaling but you know um uh, I, I think i know what, what you're i know what you're talking about but, jackson because i i'm a developer and this happens a lot yeah. like actually earlier today i i was working with my wife on a uh, development issue and it, i was trying to in my mind go like how do i tell her this without it being in language jargon. that sorry yeah That's jargon without it being in like developer jargon that she won't yeah. understand until like i explain it to her yeah exactly so for me at least i try to yeah a lot of it is jargon so yeah. a lot of it is people saying you know i when i when i watch you know the somalia documentaries i know what they're saying if i had the wine i could get a bunch of those notes as well, probably. They're going over the top. They need to, but that's the profession. These guys are meant to, you know, pinpoint every little thing they can try to. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would add is wine isn't rational. It's, you know, it's a completely irrational thing to begin with um, in terms of, you know, one thing's a beverage that you drink and you get an effect out of. That's perfectly rational. But in terms of appreciating different wines, that's all subjective. That's all based on taste. It was very, you know? very, yeah, very Misesian, very like subjective theory of value where, yeah, it, yeah, it, it, you know, it, and actually this is a really good example of this is when I was talking about this specific Bordeaux that we're, we're having, which is, um, Chateau, I'm going to pronounce this wrong again, Chateau Lenesen, Lenesen maybe, um, L-A-N-S-E-S-S-A-N. I'll take a look at the picture. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 speci- it specifically resonated with me because I smelled something that reminded me of something in childhood. And that's, yeah. and that is not at all rational. It's that I like this wine specifically. It is good, 
but and from like maybe from a subjective standpoint it's good because it's it's the subjective you know quantities or whatever of like alcohol and flavor and all that sort of stuff but specifically i like this because it reminds me of camping at bodega dunes in california yeah and that that's a great thing about smells and wine is they can bring you back a memory yeah that's you know aromas in general when i was younger um i used to go to you know a resort in the caribbean and i Get, uh, or when I would go to a hotel, I'd take back the shampoo and the conditioner bottles and you'd use them again and you'd feel like you were at the hotel. For yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, actually, that's absolutely true. Yeah. It's such, a, it's such an interesting, interesting way to, I guess, like to connect with, with the smell. Yeah. And, and I guess that's, you know, you know, going to science and I'm not going to get into this because I do have some more questions for you, Jackson. But sure. uh, but smell is very strongly connected with memory, and I think that's one of the reasons probably why people like the the smell and taste of wine is that it does bring them back to other yep. events. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I let, let me go back to let me get back to this uh, uh, appellation or the um, you know AVA and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. In, in this is one of the things that Mason and I have run across, and this is something that like I was very confused about. Uh, not really confused about exactly, but like going like, well, there must be a reason why they want to do this. There's several subregions of the Willamette Valley in Oregon that the uh, Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association are trying to like put the boot on. And now that I know that you're an anarchist, I'm, I'm sure you're not in favor of this as far as a government coming in and like enforcing this. But from a consumer standpoint or from a wine grower standpoint, what would be the advantage of somebody wanting to say that they are from the Umqua Valley rather than from the Willamette Valley, even though the Umqua Valley is technically in the Willamette Valley? It's a subregion, so you have different characteristics. It would, I think the Umqua Valley is actually is a little higher altitude, so you get a more subtle, maybe more, they would argue, more Burgundian-style Pinot Noir. It's, it's quite significant. Oh, if you look really? at, okay. it, can, I, can I go back to Europe, for example? Absolutely. Get, go back to Europe. To tie this in a little bit. If you, if you look at Bordeaux, and I'm, I think you looked at a map of it, and you see the Haute Medoc, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see, you know, you'll see a bunch of different villages. You'll see Saint-Julien, Medoc. San Estef, you'll see, uh, you'll see Margot, which is one of the most famous. You'll see all of these. And I, and basically when I did a Bordeaux competition, what you had to do in that is mm-hmm. you had to differentiate between these. So, um, and act and the most surprising thing is, um, people who knew about wine who were doing this, not, not, it was students. So it wasn't a bunch of experts, but you know, they would put one wine by side. It was all left bank Bordeaux, um, all red. And then there was a dessert wine section at the end and they would put one from say San Julian. Um, and then it would pick from say, I think that one they put would be Margot and, in a, in a team, you had to differentiate between those two, even though the villages are about three miles away. Um, but you can. You know, the Margot has a much more floral aroma, and the majority of people were able to tell between, <laughs> like, villages that were, you know, two, three miles away. Wow. Which I just thought is incredible. That, that is incredible, and it makes a lot of sense now why people would want to, like, sub-region. And, yeah. And, and it sort of also makes sense to me now a little bit, like, why the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association would sort of want to stop that is because if you're not in one of those re- regions that has kind of a more subtle flavor, you might benefit from not differentiating your wine from their wine. Yeah, well, exactly. So let me, let me not necessarily push back there. Mm-hmm. 
I think like one of the things that like is a, a knock against the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association mm-hmm. is there is a difference. Yeah. Well, that, that's what three I'm saying. Mi- three miles, three miles in France is the same as three miles in Oregon. It's not like, you know, you're not like talking about like the top of like Mount Everest or yeah. something like that. where like, you know, in the Hindu Kush where it's like literally the same thing for, you know, it's literally like if you can grow wine grapes there, three miles difference is three miles difference. Yeah. So like, I think that's one of those things where like, and this, this may be like me overthinking it after this Bordeaux experience of tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a difference in like people who go no 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 i've been drinking frank's wine from down the street as my daily wine and i've been drinking my wine all the time whereas like i think one of the things like a new world a lot of the times like it doesn't necessarily make sense to start pushing these like these areas and like subdivisions and things like that because it, it seems like we're not as ready for it like the trying to push the distinction between you know and like yeah. a left valley or left uh, excuse me left bank bordeaux as opposed to right bank right like and all you know, those, the, well, mason, those mason, are all within the left bank oh okay yeah but, but mason, mason part of the left bank so it's in, it's you can see how complicated it gets yeah exactly that's nothing compared to burgundy though do you, do you remember mason when on your birthday wine we had two wines from the same winery mm-hmm. different yeah. sections of the vineyard mm-hmm. well one was one was a specific section of the vineyard and the other one's just general they had yeah. a, they had a difference in price of about uh one was i think twenty dollars one was sixty dollars um, i think it was 20 and 40 because it was 60 total but i, okay. I may be incorrect that either way either way that's correct but they were very different even though mm-hmm. just on the same vineyard they had a specific section of the vineyard that was different from the other one and i and i thought that was very interesting and now that jackson's kind of like playing this stuff into the narrative it makes a lot more sense to me why you would want to subregion yourself or why you'd want to use the boot of government, for example, like as the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association seems to want to do to prevent people from subregioning is mm-hmm. because even on a vineyard itself, when, you know, I think, I think you and I have read this, that uh, New World vineyards average about 40 acres and Old mm-hmm. World vineyards are about 10 acres. Yeah. Um, and so when you have a 40 acre vineyard, the variety from the terroir, however you say it, um, the variety wow. you can get from that is going to be so pronounced. Why wouldn't you differentiate? Why wouldn't you say your Umqua versus Willamette Valley when just on your vineyard you're going to have a variety? So wouldn't you try to want to subregion yourself? But this sort of not to der- not to derail the conversation again. But I want to get into our article this week. There mm-hmm. is sort of a counter argument to this, and it does seem to be a, um, I guess, a consumer choice issue. Is that there is actually four plus one regions in France, Bordeaux in particular, Left Bank in particular, that have decided to consolidate from being – it was four originally. They've added a fifth into one uh, appellation, and they have – so just to kind of give you guys some background, this is from a Forbes article. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, the article is called A Success a Successful, a Successful Wine Marketing Strategy for Bordeaux Les Côtes. Coats. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it that way. It's by Pear and uh, Britt uh, Carlson. Um, so 10 years ago, um, this month, the appellation of Bly, Cadillac, Cote, uh, Cote de France, and Castellon joined to form a new appellation called Les Cotes de Bordeaux. 
Later on, another appellation joined called St. Foy, and they have decided that they're going to start producing and marketing as one region. They were separate regions. Now they're one region. Um, the motivation behind this was that um, they could better market as a unit, and they could make it easier for specifically British and American markets to identify their wines and um, judge quality based on that region. Um, and I, I actually, I think I shared this with you, Jackson, before we started recording. Um, they've actually had like really good benefits from this. And one of them is that their exports have grown by 29%, which this is actually exports growing by 29% could be argued because China has entered the scene over the last 20 years, 10 years in particular, it's really entered the scene and has been importing tons of Bordeaux wines, but um, their exports have grown by 29%. Their volume in exports has grown by 34%. Um, U.S. specific uh, exports or sales to U.S. has grown by 25% in seven, in 2017 alone. Um, the exports are now uh, 23% of the total exports of the new formed region, Les Côtes de Bordeaux, um, compared to when their exports were 11% of total sales uh, 10 years ago before they formed this new consolidation. So, um, Jackson, I know that you haven't had a chance to read this article. Mason, I'm not sure if you have or not. But, I did read it uh, several days ago. Okay, you did? Okay, great. Um, mm -hmm. So in that respect, um, from a marketing standpoint, and now you're going to start doing, uh, Jackson, this is, uh, you're going to be, as a business person, um, what do you think would be an advantage to having a consolidated wine region or having the primary wine region labeled prominently and then the secondary wine region labeled uh, in a smaller font or smaller on the bottle or on the back or something like that? Um, as a wine importer, what do you think the effect is in this? I mean, they've shown that it's been pretty good for them in this particular case. Is that a is that a case of Bordeaux maybe being too severely subdivided, or is that a case of the American market and the British market just not understanding what's going on? It's a, I wouldn't say it's Bordeaux being too subdivided. I'd say it's a combination of things. I'd say the number one thing is consumer recognition okay. in terms of wines from France. People can you know they. They know Bordeaux. And so that's a big part of it is just branding. Another part of it could easily be the distribution networks that they're setting up mm -hmm. with that. If they're consolidating together, perhaps they're working with more common distributors now, which might make it easier for them to export to the U.S. So that's another factor. And I think the biggest factor with that region, though, and the reason why consolidation made sense there is because that is a very non-prestigious region of Bordeaux. Okay. Um, it's basically, you know, a lot of it. You know, people will drink it, and, but a lot of it's just, you know, quick red blends, the stuff you buy in France for, you know, three, four bucks. Mm -hmm. um, in, you know, Bordeaux isn't necessarily a high-end region. It's actually the biggest wine region in France in terms of total production, I believe, besides unless the Languedoc is still higher. Mm -hmm. um, but so a part of it is just the sheer lack of prestige of those villages. Mm -hmm. So that, that's part of it as well. And I, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's correct. I think American consumers, they know Bordeaux, but they don't know, you know, different village names. Right. And the more names and the, and if they don't recognize the name on the bottle, most people aren't going to buy it. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and this actually, this does play to my experience. I don't know about you, Mason, but you can share after I do real quick. Um, when I, when, when Jason, or I keep calling you Jason, I know your name's Jackson, (laughs) Jackson. Um, when, uh, when you recommended a Bordeaux from the left bank, that's what I went to the wine store to look for Bordeaux left bank. But when I started talking to the dude who was there, he was like, well, what do you want? Do you want a Madoc? Do you want this? Do you want that? And, and I was like, uh, I don't know. I have no idea. I want I want left bank of the Bordeaux. I want a wine. And uh, he was able to direct me to something, which was great. Great, and that's his job. Um, and I'm very happy that he fulfilled his job correctly. Uh, and we and Mason, I, I hope that you're as satisfied satisfied as I am with this wine. Unbelievably um, so. Yeah, it, it's very it's very good. And I know you're a white wine guy, so mm-hmm. for the listeners, I'll put this in the I'll put this wine in the show notes, and you guys can try it out as well. Uh, and um, Jackson, awesome mm. recommendation. Uh, we're very, very, we're very pleased with this. I'm on my second bottle of it, and I'm already very, very pleased with it. Of course, I've been drinking since like three o'clock today, but uh, <laughs> which may be playing into it. But um, that's, I, it makes a lot of sense to me as like an American consumer. I went to the store looking for Bordeaux. I don't know. Like I wouldn't be able to differentiate between um, like Saint Foy. Like if I was going there and and like, oh, do you have a Saint Foy? I don't know a if the guy would be able to help me. He might. This guy did seem like he knew a lot, but you know the dude who goes out and collects carts, not going to find a wine unless you find a Jeopardy winner. Nobody's going to know a Saint Foy. Yeah, exactly. So you know this in in this particular Jackson. Jackson's import service will, but probably yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, there's not going to be much Saint Foy included, unfortunately. Well, but you 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 will know the, the intimate regions of Galicia and Portugal, I'm sure. Well, wait, wait, wait. The, the cheap that's version of Jackson's import service that Jacob and I will run. No, but I, like that's that's the thing I think with um, the the thing I have a problem with this article, mm-hmm. and I think Jackson would be better better able to kind of diagnose some parts of this but one of the things that i think like doesn't take into consideration is like jacob said the change in the wine market and this is one of those things where like i i look for varietal of wine as opposed to region because i'm so bamboozled necessarily by the oh this is a bordeaux but it's you know as jacob was saying the same foy or the these other sub regions Whereas I'm just looking for, like, I always look for the specific grape because that's how Total Wine generally labels themselves. And yes, I understand most of those possibly are blends, maybe not full 100%. I, I get that sort of thing. But, like, that's one of the things that, like, I think this this article doesn't take into consideration is just the pure, pure changing of the market. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that, like, yes, I think it's very interesting to see that, like this region unsubdivided itself, but you know, with different labeling laws, they could easily point out the fact that oh no, it's Bordeaux, and then it's this specific subregion, and yeah. then this is subregion within the subregion. Well, and there and- there is in the EU in particular, there is there's an interesting like series of levels when it comes to government regulation of regioning, and the EU itself does seem to me, at least from what I've read, it does seem to defer to the country or the region itself. And so the fact that they were able to unsubdivide themselves, to me, is actually a really good sign that the wine market is going to end up getting better, particularly European wines, because if the, if they can unsubdivide themselves, I think that, um, and, and with very little 
pushback. I think that they'll be able to have other regions. You know, one of the things that one one of the ones that the only one that I'm even vaguely familiar with is uh, in uh, Italy, Super Tuscans, where like uh, mm-hmm. based on the arrival Don't get of started. Super. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's such an interesting thing, but also now everybody's saying that they're a super Tuscan. So it's like a, it's a very back and forth weird thing. But the fact it that was, the, I, super Tuscans, I have, I'm kind of against that. But um, yeah, well, I think a lot of people in that region are against it as well because it was just a couple of wineries who were like, "Well, we're not going to do the Chianti labeling anymore. We're going to do these ones that we want to do." And then those were so good that other people were like, "Oh, it's a super Tuscan." And then, but that means something completely different than what those winemakers were tending to do and it, it ends up being you know it, it's such a weird thing but it's also it shows that the market is so dynamic in wine in particular because it is so subjective and it is so mm-hmm. cultural and it is so uh fluid that even if the eu or the or the you know the nation state government or whatever the government is that's in charge of it wants to label it particularly in the old world it, it's so fluid that they'll kind of it'll it'll adjust and it'll move itself. Yeah. So if you want, I can quickly explain a little of how the the EU. You mentioned you were talking earlier about the Appalachian Law in the United States. The yeah. EU Appalachian Law is completely different and right, far right. stricter. So, for example, if I wanted to, just for example, in Appalachian Law. If I want to qualify for AOP status on, let's say, on on Burgundy from, let's do, I don't know, um, um, you know, it, or a Bordeaux from Pomerol or something. If mm-hmm. I want to, if I want to qualify for Pomerol status on a Bordeaux, mm-hmm. um, and I want to follow um, French law and EU law on that, basically, I can only grow a few kinds of grapes in that region if I want to call it Pomerol from Bordeaux, mm-hmm. and and because mm-hmm. of that. Like if I'm so that's a right bank area and they make one of the more expensive wines. So it has to be mostly Merlot. And if I wanted to plant, say, Tempranillo there, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. If I did, I'd have to call it wine of France. So, yeah, it would be a it would be a lower, like a quote unquote lower level table wine. It wouldn't be a um, it wouldn't be an AOC. It would be a table wine. Okay. And and that's, I think, what like when I was reading about how the Super Tuscans got established, that it was. The original laws was that there was only three levels. Yeah, there was, and the then Super Tuscans are classified as ISAT under Italian okay. Uh, law. Okay, and so did and you, I guess like did the, you not label that as a Tempranillo? Like if you grew one hundred percent Tempranillo from that region, like Bordeaux Tempranillo? No. Oh, wow. so that's so it's very interesting, uh, and and I think yeah. that's that's. But you know, could, honestly, they could go and take out all your vines. Wow! Wow! Okay. Okay. Um, that's that is that is very strict. I guess that that is a big difference. Then it's not exactly what I thought. I thought I thought that the that what you were sacrificing by um, doing whatever you wanted was just that you would be the lowest classification of wine. You'd be tier four or whatever. And uh, well, no, you can be tier four, but you can't call yourself Bordeaux. Oh, okay. I get it. I understand. Okay. Okay. You can call yourself a French wine. So IGP. Mm-hmm. The Super Tuscans are IGP, which is right. basically uh, – that was the original classification, but now they were granted DOCG status because Italians wanted to put it up and the Italians will give anything DOCG. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Um, but basically the IGP it basically was categorized as table or country wine mm-hmm. uh, for t- Super Tuscans even though they were selling to a, a hundred bucks a bottle. Only right. people who drink them are Americans, uh, Italians. Sure. More, more sensible um, because, you know – 
print the best of what you have. Don't mm-hmm. take something somebody else does. Right. But yeah. Okay. Well, that kind of brings us to Mason. How much time do you have left? I mean, at at this point, this has been such an amazing conversation. I, I can go as long as we need to. Okay. I, I, uh, what about you, Jackson? Do you have? You I'm have happy time? to go on longer. It's, okay. It's still like seven here, so. Great. I, I have I have one more topic that I really wanted to get into because okay. you seemed like this was something that you were knowledgeable. It's not related to what we've been talking about, but it's about um, the devastation of the California wine industry during Prohibition. Oh yeah, and and I know that you told me that this was um this was something that you knew something about. I don't know if you I don't know how much you know about it, but I, I did a little bit of research and just to give the listeners a little bit of numbers um. When uh, prohibition went into effect, prohibition for all of the listeners, if you're European, uh, we do have some European listeners, prohibition in the United States, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but just to kind of recap it, is in the, I guess, the 19-teens, uh, and then it went into the effect in the 20s, the United States made uh, made it illegal for people to sell alcohol. There's a lot of stipulations on it. You can get into the law. There's a lot of very um, nuanced stuff. But for the most part, alcohol in the United States was illegal. Uh, this was not to like shit on women, but this was because when this was passed, most of the American men were overseas in Europe fighting a war and <laughs> women saw alcohol as the great evil and, and understandably so, you know, like a lot of women were forced into marriages that they didn't like and uh, their husbands were coming home drunk and beating them and that sort of stuff. And so women saw this as the great social ill. When they were granted the right to vote, they then voted for alcohol to be outlawed against the law. Um, Yeah. One mm. quick correction sure. on that. Okay. The, um, they, I, I think you can make the case prohibition was before, um, was before women's suffrage. Oh really? Okay. Well, I know that like uh, the the one specific case that I'm that I am familiar with is that the, is Oregon. Statewide, statewide it, yeah, statewide. Sure. You're correct. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. I, I feel good that I'm correct. <laughs> but like, if, it was like one year after. It was okay. a one year difference, so it's okay. not or less. So it's not that big a deal. Okay. All right. Well, either way, uh, if you guys want to write to me and correct me, you can you can contact us at uh, tastinganarchy at gmail dot com, or you can talk to me at at tastinganarchy on Twitter, and I will be happy to make a correction in the show in the future. But just to get back mm-hmm. specifically to California, um, when prohibition was passed, over the duration of prohibition, ninety four percent of vineyards uh, went out of business, and the grapes vines were torn out. They were pulled out of the ground, and the people who owned the land put in things like apricots, or they put in olive groves, or you know various other things that grow very well in California. It's a Mediterranean climate. There's not very many Mediterranean climates outside of the Mediterranean, and so when alcohol was against the law, they went ahead and just planted other things that people would desire that are Mediterranean climate things: pomegranates, uh, uh, olives, apricots, etc. Um, there were the a few. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, the cleverest ones were making basically a grape concentrate that if you let it out for two days, it fermented and turned into wine within a week. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's the next thing that I wanted to bring up. Um, they, <laughs> there were a few that survived, and the ones that f- survived were doing that. They were either shipping grapes out in uh, refrigerated cars, in, in rail cars, or they were doing grape concentrates that you could ferment at home because there was actually a exception to the law, and the law was that you could at home ferment 200 gallons of fruit juice for personal consumption if you wanted to. That was allowed. And so a lot of places 
in that were growing grapes in the United States, New York in particular, Virginia in particular, were going ahead and tearing out grapes. Now, Virginia has had actually a very difficult history with grapes, so, but I won't get into that. We'll save that for another episode. Um, but apples is one thing that Virginia did grow very well and has grown very well for a long time. And they were actually not tearing out as many apple orchards as we thought. They were actually producing apple apple pulp to be concentrated and, and shipped to uh, people who wanted to home ferment. Mm. And um, Virginia was doing a very similar thing. So Virginia was, or I'm sorry, California was doing a very similar thing. They were producing a concentrated grape pulp that was not um, fermented. It was not alcoholic, but once you got it at home and you allowed it to ferment, it would become alcoholic. And they also were allowed to do a lot of this for the Catholic church and for, uh, Jewish sacramental purposes yeah. and, um, uh, to a lesser extent Orthodox cause the United States didn't have that many Orthodox at the time. Um, but there was, there was that, uh, aspect to it. Um, some wineries survived, but not very many. And that kind of, once prohibition was repealed, California had to kind of catch up again. And I know Jackson, you said this is something you knew a lot about. You want to add anything to that uh, history? I, I think it's very interesting, and I think that anything you have to say will be a wealth to the audience. No, I just want to give you a little idea of kind of how the California wine industry started before prohibition. Kind of what it was like is they were a lot of it. They were using more Spanish grapes that were brought up, which makes complete sense. Yeah. You know, Thais and stuff brought up from Mexico. Um, but actually, in, during the 19th century, the California wine industry wasn't dominated by French grapes. You had Riesling in Napa Valley was one of the big things. You still have it today. You had more Spanish. You had more Italian grape varieties, which if you look at the climate of California, is a much natu more natural fit for it than, say, Cabernet. Bordeaux is not that warm a place, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's one thing which is kind of interesting as well as it was and a huge amount of them were run by Hungarians and Germans. Okay. So so there was a lot of sweet wine producers and there was a just a, a huge variety and a lot of it was high quality as well. It was winning international awards. So this is, makes a lot of sense actually that Hungarians would be dominating that market because isn't Zinfandel more of a um, like Croatian, Hungarian, uh, Serbian type of grape? Uh, Zinfandel is such an interesting history. It originally comes, it was uh, traced genetically to Croatia, um, but it's the same thing as a um, grape in Italy, which I am sadly blanking out on right okay. now. Okay, all right. Well, so um, I, 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 I know what you're saying. It's so devastating that you don't remember this one thing where you've just, just like done so well with everything. Primitivo and Puglia. Primitivo and Puglia was proven to be the same thing, but genetically they were yeah. able to trace it. That, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. To Croatia. Okay. Yeah. And so that's one of them. And they, that was – they originally thought it was a Native American grape. Actually. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, for a while, they thought it was the only um, uh, Vitis Lambrusca that you could produce a high-quality wine out of, um, which if you know Vitis Lambrusca is like you know Welch grapes, like well, table yeah. grapes. Didn't, and you actually – I think you mentioned this once when we were talking on Twitter is that yeah. there – that, uh, down in like the Texas Hill Country, they produce a yeah. wine there that's kind of weird – that is from like a, a a jam grape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My family made a wine from a jam grape there back in the back in back a while ago. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, Mustang grapes in Texas. Okay, Mustang. That's it. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, Mustang wine. Apparently, it was sweet, and they had it once, and like all the German eighteen-year-olds got pregnant. <laughs> that, that, of course, of course, they did. Yes. 
All right. Well, uh, and so, you know, just kind of uh, to go back on this a little bit to the, like the prohibition times is that yeah. it, it's really, it's really interesting to me that, um, Mason, I don't know if you want to tie this to this or not, but like I'm, I'll, I'll say this is that the the prohibition of alcohol was so detrimental, and it really only the only people who were allowed to continue to consume alcohol like on a legal status were people who use it for med- medicinal purposes, people who use it for sacramental purposes. And there is a couple of churches in the United States that are, are allowed to use psilocybin and DMT for sacramental purposes. Mm-hmm. And it is growing that marijuana and a few other types of things, DMT, MDMA, psilocybin, are able to be used for medicinal purposes. Um, this so much harkens back to prohibition, which is so extremely detrimental to the United States that it, it blows my mind that nobody recognizes that it's the same thing. My family picked up at a tag sale one time, a, um, basically a full, like almost fully, but, you know, court filled uh, bottle of bourbon from Prohibition that said Kentucky, that says Kentucky medicinal bourbon on it, which is from 1917. Oh, that's, that's, so, that's so funny. Okay, which well. Is, it's kind of fun. It, I don't, well, it, oh, it's is, great. I, I'd love to have that. This is one of those things about Prohibition that, like, um, so. I was listening to Dan Carlin's hardcore history of the first world war again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like the, the societal changes of those people who had to suffer the inhumanity of the first world war and like the mechanized death and like the, just the difference between like Antietam, which is like, you know, the bloodiest day in American history. And like, you know, there's 20,000 casualties, let's call it. And I'm sure that I'm incorrect in the numbers. And like the Psalm where like all told there's a million people casualties. Yeah, it's a five month battle, but like, it's just this unhumanity of it. And like, one of the things that I was thinking about was what if prohibition had happened like in 1890 when there were no world war one veterans people coming back who didn't give a crap who had seen people just literally evaporate as a shell hit the the line because i mean like jacob like do you remember how many americans died in world war one and we were in the conflict for a year i, I don't year, i don't i don't 18 know months? yeah i don't remember the numbers I think it's 117,000 yeah i yeah, do i do know though that like something like a th- like 30 percent or 40 percent or something like that of all scottish people of uh, scottish men were killed. Right? Yeah, it's, it's like astronomical numbers. It's, literally, it, people just evaporate. People disappear, and like I can't think of a worse place in the world to be than you know, stone, yeah. you know. I mean, the, like there are there are a few places: the killing fields in Cambodia, the you know, Dachau, like these, like places that are engineered to murder people. Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a murder factory. Oh, it is. Yeah. It, it really and, is. And so, but like the idea that prohibitions, like you know, like you look at like the drug cartels in Mexico and like against drug prohibition now. Yeah, and yeah. we wonder like Los Zetas, which is like the Mexican military that literally turned against the Mexican government and decided to sell drugs and just their murder factory. Like they are the scariest people imaginable. Yeah, and it's like, why did U.S. prohibition now work? It's you you get people who came back and go, yeah, I need to drink, and you've been drinking. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have a way to deal with what I saw. And, and they I was there for in the war either. Was that? They're, they weren't taking a break from drinking during the war either. Oh, no. It, exactly. Like, they were getting European drink. Like, and that's what's like. You're wondering, like, why people who, like, oh, like, a million men were drafted into this and out of a million, you know, like, what were you, like, 60 million people or something like that? So one sixth, one of the population went and, like, even smelling those battlefields mm-hmm. could cause PTSD. Like, yeah. it just, and you're like, oh, yeah, like, yeah. prohibition, like, I think prohibition was the dumbest thing the US, U.S. government has done outside of, like, taxation in, in those sort of, like, classic libertarian tropes. But, like, I, you're literally talking about people who are just like, yeah, I can't deal with anything. Yeah. I'll kill I, you. My grandmother uh, grew up, uh, she knew, I think her one of her uncles or one or two of her great uncles was in World War One. I. I think they had both maybe have had were permanently injured after, and all they could do was sit around in a room and listen to baseball on the radio for fun. You know, yeah, that's miserable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and that's the thing these is like people who's in, you know these are people in Texas whose first language was German. Yeah, and yeah, imagine that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's the one thing like I think Jacob will possibly agree with this. Like I think Dan Carlin is the closest to like Tom Woods you get as like one of the mainstream podcast hosts. Yeah. Like, you he's, know, he's, he's quite good on foreign policy, too. He, I don't know he, he's very he good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he does tend to be kind of more of a, I guess, mainstream conservative, but conservative I, in I, this I, in the sense of like pre George W. Bush, he's in George George he's H. An American Bush. first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More well, like that. Yeah, more like. Um, yeah, I'd uh, I'd say he has a weird combination. Like his politics are interesting. It's like a a combination of like nineteenth century isolationism with modern day tolerance. It's a weird combination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, but, the yeah. one thing that I the one thing that I hate about the uh, the. Uh, something to Armageddon. I forget what he calls the series of six episodes. About I mean, is it count, countdown to Armageddon or something yeah, like that. Countdown yeah. Armageddon. But like his treatment of Wilson and not saying that this is the worst human being <laughs> yeah. that like, like, you know, Von Falkenheim and like these German generals and the, the you know, um, Joseph Jaffra, these guys who like literally fed people that could have cured cancer who friggin knows into the meat grinder that was these world war one battles mm-hmm. wilson desired to put the american man into this without the understanding of what this was he knew what this was he yeah. knew exactly what was happening on the battlefields of world war one and the u.s military was too freaking stupid to understand what it was but he engineered us being there and like Dan Carlin's treatment of Wilson, like, oh, I don't know if he's a bad guy or not. No, he's the worst friggin' human yeah. being that well, ever well, existed. Yeah. yeah, pretty bad. No disagreement with me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's just like, God. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's definitely like the Michael Malice uh, position of like worst presidents. Steve's, you yeah. got Woodrow Wilson up also, there on the top. Also, imagine if Teddy Roosevelt were president in 1914 when it started. Oh, uh, I, absolutely. Yeah. To, to be honest, I think he would have been rolled. I think he would have been killed in the streets. I th- yeah, I think you're right, actually. Yeah. I like, just thought of it. <laughs> well, it was yeah, funny. Like, what's funny about that, it, I don't have any relatives alive that were alive during World War One, obviously, but um, my oh, grandmother Lord, was. Did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, my grandmother was alive in, in World War II, and I've talked to her about this a lot. And, you know, she's always like, well, we didn't – at the beginning, we didn't even really understand – you know, actually, uh, Jackson, she's from Seattle. Um, oh, cool. 
Yeah. Uh, she, she was like, when that was go, when that started and we yeah. entered the war, she was like, I didn't really understand. I had no idea why we were there. And most people that I knew were like, no, why would we be going and fighting another war in Europe? Like after world war one, like that was crazy. And like, Oh yeah, the Japanese did this, but we were fighting a war against the Japanese. We're not going to fight against it a war in Europe and they were very anti FDR and actually Mason, you and I have talked about this a little bit is um, Rose Wilder Lane, who Uh was contemporary of my grandma being a child uh, was very anti world war two. And there was a lot of people who were very anti world war two, but that's not the narrative we're given. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't want to, I don't want to like deviate off into this because we're we're running, (laughs) we're running on like an hour and a half. I do really want to have you back on Jackson because you have been, such an amazing wealth of knowledge on this show. Um, mm-hmm. Mason, do you want to re- re- really quickly recap the wine? To, to be 100% honest, like while I thoroughly enjoyed the Chateau Laisson um, Hoyt Madoc 2015 that I had, I get like this homey red wine feeling like this. This Yeah, you should get that I, in Bordeaux. I, I okay. taste the passion in it. And not in that, like, people flailing about and just doing a good job once or twice. It's people who literally go year after year, this is my legacy. This is what I want to, like, when I look back and go, oh, you had a 30-year-old bottle of my wine? Did you get this? Like, that. that's what I get out of it. Whether they meant it to be aged for 30 years or not, like... I get that feeling out of it and I couldn't give you a better flavor description or profile of that. It, it is just a fantastic bottle of red wine. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I thoroughly agree. Like the, the 2014 that I have um, last week and the 2015 didn't have as much of this like kelp smell that brought me back to like my childhood camping on, on the beaches, but it, um, the, the fruitiness that like the kind of like ripe fruit flavors that were up front, Awesome flavors, really great wine. If you guys are gonna have something that like what I ate late earlier today was, um, it's a it's a it's a Ukrainian or Eastern European style. Well, I guess it would be Russian style uh, dried uh, meat called uh, Moskovskaya Kelbasa, and um, this goes very 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 well with that. A very fatty meat. Um, I also have had it with uh, a uh, very, very fatty ham called balik, which is smoked. Um, awesome pairing. So if you guys are going to have like a fatty meat, a warm meat, a, a homey meat, this is the wine I would recommend for that. Of course. Now, you know, my uh, those long-term listeners, uh, I'm going to recommend much lighter fare um, with the, the heavier wine, especially because like to me personally, especially if you're having a salad with heavy vinaigrettes in like super acidic things while this has an acidity to it i think it would just pair so well with that whereas like with the fats it it does pull that fat off your tongue which Mm -hmm. helps open up the fat taste and things like that um i think you could do really well with like some lighter fare like and even maybe not salmon but almost up to the the higher the lower end tunas like high-end tuna is definitely going to be good with this in my opinion but like the the fattier almost oilier tunas the cheaper tunas like I think this would do really well with because it, it it's such a it's such a dominating red wine flavor without being 
like exasperating where it's like you're burnt out. It, mm-hmm. it, it's just so well balanced in, in its red wineness. Right. So Jack yeah. Jackson from this region oh. of Bordeaux, what do you think you you would normally eat this with? Yeah, no, I was uh, yeah, perfect question because I was about mm-hmm. to say okay. for, for me, um, yeah, Bordeaux, the old world in general, where it really excels, and I think it far exceeds the new world is its compatibility with food and the fact that when you have a wine like that when you have that kind of slightly savory but you get that red fruit in the bordeaux it calls for food to be had with it yeah you know you're not just drinking it like a cocktail mm-hmm. um you know it's a food right um, right um so yeah for yeah I'd say Bordeaux, the classics for Bordeaux is lamb, a slow roast lamb. Bordeaux is fantastic. You can't go wrong with, you know, steak in Bordeaux, but I, I think lamb in Bordeaux is just magical. Okay. Lamb, a bit of uh, rosemary, potatoes, Bordeaux, a nice bottle of Bordeaux. <laughs> that's, that sounds that's, awesome. That's a nice evening. <laughs> that is a great be, evening, yeah. I mean, like, even though, like, I, I always – I kind of do the reverse of pairings. Like I, that, like I could like, while I had a heavy pot roast, um, tonight and it was, you know, cooked with Tempranillo, um, again, pronouncing that incorrectly, but like the, like the Bordeaux would have gone so fantastic with that. But like that lamb just, it calls to me at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And pairing wine as well. You can contrast. I actually, I drink more white wine than red, um, especially with food. Um, so Okay, well, that's, that makes yeah, that's good. sort of a misconception, but it's for me, it's forty five fifty five. We're going to need to have you on then for a white wine because yeah. uh, I know that Mason is is a is a I guess a much more favorable to white wine than I am. Although I've been getting mm-hmm. I've been getting really into Vignet lately. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what that, I I've really been liking that a lot lately. Um, but uh, not to get too much off track because we got to wrap it up. Mason, do cool. you want to give the last couple of plugs for the for the show? Certainly. So um, uh, always, if you if you're looking at to reach out to us directly, tastinganarchy on gmail dot com. Um, we have tastinganarchy dot com. Um, hopefully. Um, if Jason's interested, in, or Jackson, good lord, um, what a night. Um, you know, maybe we can better flush out the blog itself with uh, better articles from Jason or Jacob and I, and then hopefully Jackson would choose to contribute when he can, certainly when he wants to, as, as things progress, hopefully for the better for his ability to have an import business. Um, if you want to talk to Jacob on Twitter or uh, see Jacob on Twitter, uh, Tasting Anarchy on Twitter, um, also for podcast Friends Against Anarchy, I mean, if you want to see another, you know, there's always those tiers of you know, libertarian podcasts. Guys, Go ahead. Those guys are doing a great job. They are. Yeah, they are. Great. And, they and, are. and uh, Car Camp is here in, in uh, well, he's actually over in Fort Worth, but he and I have gotten together once yeah. and uh, we're going to get together a couple more times. He, he's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I was going to say is like those guys, like, so, you know, when you think about libertarian podcasts, you got like Tom Woods, Jason Stapleton, you, you know, the Contra Krugman episode, you know, series, um, even, uh, even uh minds of liberty mm-hmm. um but then you got like our tier where you know we're we're the up-and-coming guys like they are the, kind of the leading the charge of the up-and-comers right um you know car and bird anarchy like they they're they are just there and like yeah. I, and they're and know, they're fun there's just so much yeah. fun yeah yeah um one, one podcast i wanted to actually go ahead and mention in our plugs is radio rothbard uh hosted by ryan, oh, yes. ryan mcmakin i've just started mm-hmm. listening to a lot of those every one of those episodes is great and if you guys want just a lot of like uh 
actually Ryan McMakin's really interesting because I don't know exactly if he's an Austrian, but he is such a Misesian Rothbardian contributor and he breaks down complex issues in a way that's easy to digest so well. So if you're interested in, in, I guess, libertarian thought that's in a digestible way, go ahead and check out Radio Rothbard, uh, hosted by Ryan McMakin. I definitely think he's Misesian given that the Mises Institute, uh, is the the foundation that sponsors the podcast that that makes sense yeah um yeah. and i think that that's it uh uh, uh jackson do you want to host or plug anything for you do you have anything going on uh-huh. as far as like your import business you or, or twitter jackson blood on twitter easy mm-hmm. name to remember yep um and that's about it. Really appreciated it. Okay. Well, I, I really yeah. want to have you back on because this has been yeah. one of the most informative episodes I think we have ever had. Um, yeah, and I'd love to talk more politics next time as well. Awesome. Oh, awesome. Believe, believe me. So what what I would say is um, when you can, if you find an article that you want to discuss, definitely get it over to Jacob. I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll figure out a way to communicate as well. Yeah. Um you know, so that way we can talk about that. And then also any sort of suggestion, you know, especially if you run into something that's, you know, more unique or something that is outside of your expectations, sure. wine wise, because oh. I think that'll make such a great pairing. Yeah. Let me, yeah. Inter- let me interrupt you guys one more time because uh, Jackson, you gave me a really good suggestion that I wanted to have just for our last closing suggestion. Uh, mm-hmm. Lopez de Herida. Is that correct? Yeah. Lopez de Herida. Uh, tell us a little bit <laughs> no, about Jacob, that. You weren't even close. <laughs> okay. Tell us a little bit about that. And, um, and that is what we'll close on because I want our listeners to have a good wine recommendation to close oh. on. Oh yes. Besides okay. what we so had. The bodega is called, and it's a mouthful. It's Bodega Lopez de Herida, you know, Abina Tondonia. It's a Rioja maker from Spain. They've been doing it, I think at least since the 1860s. Um, and they produce some of the best, most classic Rioja. If you want to have a classic Rioja and you don't want to spend too much money, they're not cheap. But if you don't want to spend too much money and you want to taste what a true, great, classic Rioja is, then I would say go there, uh, buy one of theirs. I just looked them up. They're on Total Wine, actually. So you can buy a Lopez Ooh. de Arida Cubella Crienza, which I would recommend for you guys for your next bottle. Let that sit in your glass maybe 30 minutes before. Smell it a while. Have, you know... You know, and, and that's just a phenomenal wine, and you can get a really good bottle. I think you can get maybe the 2011 vintage or something for $24. So. Okay. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna link to that in the show notes. Price point, too. Yeah, that's it's not bad at all. It basically, you won't get a better wine for the money period. Okay. I'm going to link to that in the show notes because I just looked it up on uh, on Total Wine as well. Uh, so if you guys are interested in trying that, that is actually one that Mason and I may review in the future mm-hmm. because I've been really into Rehaws lately. Uh, and I think that is it for the show from me. Stay free, Mason. Yes, sir. And what about you, Jackson? Thanks for having me. All right. Great. Course. Have a wonderful day, guys. Good night. Hoy! Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peter's town, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. 
All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine, throw the yodi, drink wine. Wine, throw the yodi, drink wine. Wine, throw the yodi, drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton Sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willis Den. He wasn't sailing for the American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine for the other day. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Some buys fifth and some buys four. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for the other day. Wine for the other day. Wine for the other day. Wine. Pass that bottle.